Take your Bibles and turn with me this morning back to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, as we have the privilege this morning of finishing up our Flourish in Faith emphasis. This has been a great season in the life of our church. It has been hard that it has fallen during this season of COVID-19 when we are still having to be so cautious and many of our own members still have not yet been able to return to worship among us. And yet we are excited about all that God is doing as we look toward a vision for this next decade that we have presented to the body, as we have the privilege of coming together and expressing the joy and the cheerfulness and giving to the Lord to complete what we have been able to do here to keep our church in good repair and as a lighthouse for the truth for years to come. This morning we are finishing off our focus passage by looking at John chapter 15 verses 9 through 11. Please follow along with me as I read. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Pray with me now. Father God, this is your word. And Lord, you have told us even in previous verses, it is as we abide in your word that we abide in Christ. Our prayer now as your children is simply, Lord, that you would reign in this place. May your spirit wield your truth as a righteous sword, cutting away, Lord, our corruption convicting us of sin, encouraging, Lord, and then building us up in righteousness that we may be conformed to Christ our Lord in all things, that we may be a people who truly have joy in all that our Savior is for us. In the precious name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters, we have the blessing of coming together and talking about probably what is the favorite subject of Christians, and that is the love of God. The love of God that is, that is far deeper and wider than we can plumb. The love of God which is poured out for us in Jesus Christ our Lord who loved us when we were yet enemies of the cross of Christ. The love of God that even now sustains us as his children in all that we do. As I've mentioned from the pulpit here over the past couple weeks, just what a blessing the book Gentle and Lowly has been to me. I would like to quote from chapter 2. The Jesus given to us in the Gospels is not simply one who loves, but one who is love. Merciful affections stream from his innermost heart as rays from the sun. And it is impossible for the affectionate heart of Christ to be over-celebrated, made too much of, or exaggerated. It cannot be plumbed. The cumulative testimony of the four Gospels is that when Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of the world all about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct, is to move toward sin and suffering, not away from it. Jesus walked the earth rehumanizing the dehumanized and cleansing the unclean. Why? Because his heart refused to let him sleep in. 
Sadness confronted him in every town. So wherever he went, whenever he was confronted with pain and longing, he spread the good contagion of his cleansing mercy. Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan, said, Christ is love covered over in flesh. Picture it, brothers and sisters. Pull back the flesh of the Stepford wives or of the Terminator and you find machine, but pull back the flesh on Christ and you find love. Doesn't that make you want to rejoice this morning, brothers and sisters, just beginning to contemplate that? In the words of Samuel T. Francis, the hymn writer, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. As we conclude this emphasis this Sunday, we want to be encouraged to press forward boldly in obedience because of the love of our Savior. As we say in our new philosophy of ministry, we aim to set forth the beauties of Christ and the fullness of how He lovingly does everything necessary to secure our right standing with God. And that we are thus determined not to lead people to obey from the law, but from the sweet invitations and encouragements of the gospel. That's what we want to do today as we explore this subject of the love of our Savior. And the first thing we see this morning from verse 9 is the nature of love. The nature of love. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Now as we come to verse 9, I hope as we read those words that we are staggered by this declaration of love. You know, when we, when we hear our husband or, or wife or our mother or father or our son or our daughter or our dearest friend say to us, I love you, those three words are like sunshine to our soul, aren't they? They are. Love is both one of the greatest pursuits and one of the greatest enjoyments of this life. I mean, we celebrate it throughout our culture, even through non-Christian culture. We, we write novels and movie scripts and songs that focus on this one subject of love. We seek it through a myriad of social relationships. And we ache and grieve and feel isolated when we are without it. It is not an overstatement for us to say that every single human being needs love. And so how astonishing it is then to be told by the sovereign of the universe, I have loved you. We who are rife with sin, we who are by nature unholy, unrighteous, we who are by nature enemies of God, the divine Savior says to us, I love you. We are chosen and redeemed and lavished with the very love of Jesus. And the nature of that love is the exact same as the nature of the love the Father has for the Son. That's what's even more staggering. If we go forward just a couple chapters in John chapter 17, verses 22 and 23, we see Jesus express similar realities. He says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. 
I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Brothers and sisters, the Father and the Son love us with the same kind of love that they have for each other. How does God the Father love God the Son? Well, God loves Christ. God the Father loves Christ infinitely, meaning that there are no limits to the Father's love for His Son. His affection and delight and joy in Jesus is as boundless and divine and magnificent as His heart. And and that's almost too much for us to comprehend, isn't it? Because as human beings, from a human perspective, we readily put limits on our love sometimes even love for the most important people in our lives. We too often resort to our flesh where we put conditions upon our love, even for those that are nearest to us. But not God. His love for His Son is beyond measure, beyond time, beyond human explanation, because it is as infinite as He is. God also loves Christ. God the Father also loves Christ eternally. Infinite love is without limits. Eternal love is love without end. Jesus said in John 17, 24, that the Father had loved him from before the foundation of the world. The Father's love for the Son will never cease. It has existed throughout all eternity. It exists now, and it will exist for all of eternity future. God will never change. Christ will never change. And though creation and humanity change continuously, every change in us is already known by God, and He is determined to manifest His love through those things for the glory of His Son. The Father's love for His Son is eternal. Thirdly, not only is it infinite, not only is it eternal, but the Father's love for the Son is perfect. There is no defect in the love of God. There is no shortcoming in the Father's love. His love is flawless. And once again, that's in great contrast to us as human beings, isn't it? We love, but we do not always love well. We are inconsistent. We are fickle. We are selfish, and we fail. But that is not the nature of God's love. His love for Christ is perfectly joyous, perfectly fulfilling, perfectly motivated, perfectly righteous, perfect in every regard. And here it is, brothers and sisters, the great truth that Jesus would drive home to us through our text here, verse 9. Just as God loves Christ infinitely, eternally, and perfectly, He loves us in the exact same way and to the exact same degree. Now, wait a second, Pastor Sean. Are you you serious that you can say that? Are you sure that you can say that? I mean, we're talking about the divine love for the Father and the Son. How, How can that love also be lavished upon us? Here's why, brothers and sisters. Because when we believe in Christ, we are united with Him. It is because of our union with Christ that we are beloved. Because we are one with the Savior in every way. And to the degree that the Father loves the Son, He loves us. 
And it is the Son's work in us to increasingly enlarge our hearts, to increasingly conform us to, uh, to His person so that we may love the Father back with a heart that is big as Christ, it's His own. Brothers and sisters, this is marvelous. This means that even our sin, even when we mess up, even when we break God's commandments as his children, even our sin cannot keep Christ at a distance. Do you know that Christ is even closer to his children today than he was to the people that he touched and lived with and walked with during his earthly life? Did you know that? To go back to gentle and lowly, let me quote the book because it says this so well. If compassion clothed itself in a human body and went walking around this earth, what would it look like? We don't have to wonder. The same Christ who wept at the tomb of Lazarus weeps with us in our lonely despair. The same one who reached out and touched lepers puts his arm around us today when we feel misunderstood and sidelined. The Jesus who reached out and cleansed messy sinners reaches into our souls and answers our half-hearted plea for mercy with the mighty, invincible cleansing of one who cannot bear to do otherwise. The New Testament teaches that we are united to Christ. A union so intimate that whatever our own body parts do, Christ's body can be said to do Jesus Christ is closer to you today than he was to the sinners and sufferers he spoke with and touched in his earthly ministry. Through his spirit, Christ's own heart envelopes his people with an embrace nearer and tighter than any physical embrace could ever achieve. His actions on earth in a body reflect his heart. The same heart now acts in the same way toward us, for we are now his Brothers and sisters, Christ is closer to you as his child than any of those he was closest to during his earthly ministry. And that because of his spirit among us. Do not doubt the love of God that has been lavished upon you in Jesus Christ. And do not think for a minute that your failings, your foibles, your sins, even, even your returning to sin can ever remove Jesus' hand from you if you are truly His. Now let us not hear that as a license to sin, brothers and sisters, but let us be so staggered by the love of God that we would hate and forsake our sin and press into Him more deeply. This love, His love, is the love that we are to abide in. But then follows the practical question, how do we do that? Well, that takes me to my second point. We saw first the nature of love. Now we look at the manner of love. Look at verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. So we saw back in verse 7 that we abide in Christ by abiding in His Word. Now we are told that if we keep His commandments, we will abide in His love. What we are seeing here is an irrevocable link between love and obedience. 
And it's important to get to, to understand this right, to get this right. If we back up to chapter 14, we see Jesus make these kind of statements multiple times. In chapter 14, verse 15, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Now, the first thing we want to notice is that loving Jesus is not the same thing as keeping his commandments. Rather, loving him precedes and gives rise to us keeping his commandments. In other words, keeping his word is the result of loving him. It is not the same or the act of loving him. So what is this love for Jesus that gives rise to keeping his commandments? Well... It lies in the inherent beauty and virtue of the Son. We understand that Jesus himself is ultimately lovely and lovable. Jesus is perfect. Jesus is the sum of all righteous virtues and strengths. He is our creator made incarnate. Love for Jesus is entirely deserved. He is infinitely worthy of our affections because of all that he is. He is perfectly lovely, which means that love for him is a proper response to his beauty and greatness and glory and heart. It is our pleasure to love and desire him because he is infinitely desirable. We admire and treasure and enjoy him because he is the source and focal point of all that is good and beautiful and meaningful and satisfying. Loving Christ is thus a matter of delighting in an excellent Savior. And Jesus says that doing excellent things, that keeping his commandments, is the result of delighting in the excellent Savior. And that brings us back to, to, to verse 10 of chapter 15, which completes the thought. If we love him, we will keep his commandments. And as we keep his commandments, we abide in his love. Remember what abiding is from a few weeks back. It is dwelling in, depending upon, and enduring in something. Keeping God's commands does not earn our salvation, and keeping his commands as Christians does not keep us saved. We must remember that Christ alone has done everything necessary to secure our salvation. But, and this is important, as branches that are connected to the vine that is Christ, loving him results in a love for his righteousness. And a love for righteousness is manifested as a love for his law. Loving him results in a love for his righteousness. And a love for righteousness is then manifested in us as a love for his law. This is why the psalmist could say in Psalm 119 verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And then verse 165, Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. If we look at how love is defined in the Bible, we see that love shows respect and honor to the beloved. We see that love sacrifices in order to put the interest of the beloved before oneself. We see that love is full of grace and goodness and always walks in holiness and rejoices in the truth. Love protects from evil and defends what is right. I ask you, brothers and sisters, who do we see those traits more clearly in than Jesus? Isn't Jesus perfect in doing all those things? 
He ultimately shows respect and honor. Jesus sacrifices in order to put the interests of the beloved before his own. Jesus is full of grace and goodness, always walking in holiness and rejoicing in the truth. Jesus protects from evil and defends what is right. And this is why Jesus offers himself as our model for commandment keeping in verse 10. He says he has done this very thing that he is commanding us to do. He has kept his Father's commandments and therefore abides in his Father's love. And therefore, because he has gone before us, because he has not only shown us the way, he has become to us the way, our very way, we too can abide in the love of the Father as we keep his commandments, as we delight to do the will of the Father the way Jesus did. To be clear, brothers and sisters, as one author stated, God's commands are not an invitation to earn salvation. They are an invitation to enjoy communion with Him. God's commands are not an invitation to earn salvation. They are an invitation to enjoy communion with Him. That's where we want to abide. You see, our disobedience fractures our fellowship and it disrupts our communion with Christ. Sin is dishonoring to God, which is not love at all. But God never removes himself or his hand from the believer, even when we sin. It is we who turn from him. He remains steadfast and never lets us go. But as we repent, as we find our joy again in obeying him, we are once again in a place to enjoy the sweet flow of his love and tender mercies that are always being lavished upon us through our communion with him. So as we keep his commandments, we abide in his love. Obedience does not keep us in Christ, but it does keep us nearest to his heart and directly beneath the gushing torrent of his tender affection. And it is in this place of communion with him, it is there in that place of communion with him that we are set to know our greatest joy. That carries me to my third point and our third verse where we see the fruit of love. Look at verse 11. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Think about what Jesus is saying here in verse 11. Here we see that his commandments are an invitation for us to internalize his joy and experience the maximum joy. That's what his commandments do. They are an invitation for us to internalize the very joy of Christ and to experience the maximalization of that joy. Now that brings us back to something Pastor Scott was saying at the, at the call to worship. How do we understand joy? How do we biblically define it? Sometimes it's defined merely as a godly happiness, but that definition falls far short. Joy is that great delight and gladness and pleasure of the soul that is rooted in divine promises and eternal realities rather than being tied to earthly circumstances. That's what joy is. So it's a whole lot more than mere happiness. It is a deep-rooted gladness of the soul as we have planted ourselves firmly in Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
And, and this is why I would pause and just very carefully say to you, those of you within the sound of my voice, as a matter of God's common grace, as, 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 as a matter of His blessings upon all of creation, you as an unbeliever may get to experience some happiness in this life. But you will never know true joy. Because apart from Jesus Christ, all you have is hope in this life. And you have no hope in the life to come. All that awaits you in the life to come is God's wrath and everlasting torment in a literal place called hell. Because God is a holy God, He must punish sin. And that punishment of sin in a literal place called hell is not a biblical fairy tale. It is a scriptural certainty for those who depart this life without Jesus. If you would know what real love is, what real forgiveness is, what real joy is, then you must repent of your sin and believe in Jesus Christ alone. Sin is the path of destruction. Self is the path of destruction. But Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through Him. I plead with you, even our young people who have yet to come to this place where you've trusted in Him. This day, trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Be saved from the wrath to come and know the joy of salvation. Know the very joy of Jesus Christ Himself that is promised here in verse 11. That is really our objective, isn't it, brothers and sisters? Throughout the Bible, we see the joy of Jesus. According to Proverbs 8, 30 and 31, Jesus was infinitely happy with His Father before and during the foundation of the world. When the angels came to announce His human arrival, it was good news of great joy. In Psalm 45, which addresses Jesus, it says, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness before your companions. King David even wrote about the joy that his great descendant would experience from God in Psalm 21.6. You make Him most blessed forever. You make Him glad with the joy of your presence. Jesus was a, a joyful person, even though he was also a man of sorrows. Jesus likened himself to a, a bridegroom of the bride. And his, and his opponents, the Pharisees and religious leaders, they accused him of having too much joy among sinners. He even taught that joy was essential to receiving his kingdom in Matthew 13, 44. We see Jesus' own joy when he makes himself the shepherd in the parable of the lost sheep. What does the shepherd do when he finds his lost sheep? Truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over 99 that never went astray. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus is even cast as the, the woman in the parable of the lost coin, who when she had found her coin, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The joy of Jesus is in seeing his children come into right relationship with his Father. The joy that fed and sustained Jesus was not the sermons he gave. It was not the sick people that he healed. It was not the dead that he raised. But more than anything, it was the relationship he had with his Father. The bottom of Jesus' joy was not what he did in the world so much as it was his joy in who he belonged to. 
This is what's confirmed again in Luke chapter 10, verses 21 and 22. As Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Jesus delighted. He rejoiced in being a son, his, the Son of the Father, and He delighted in depending upon His Father. Even in the garden on the night before he died, he was sorrowful and troubled. He confessed, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death in Matthew 26. Jesus had experienced the agonies of being betrayed by a friend, denied by his disciples, put on trial by corrupt rulers, by being mocked and scourged by godless soldiers, and by being crucified in public. How was he sustained through all that? By his joy. He says, and it says in Hebrews 12 too, that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. Oh, brothers and sisters, how can we not listen when a Savior of such joy turns to us and says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy for behold, your reward is great in heaven. Luke 6, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Luke 10, Jesus is no hypocrite when he tells us to rejoice. He is the man of joys drawing us into his own and he wants our joy to be full. That is a truth that makes John 15, 11 so astounding. Jesus on the night before his death on the cross says that he wants his joy to be ours. Not just that we would have joy, but that we would have His joy. The very joy of the Son of God Himself poured into our souls. Brothers and sisters, do you have this joy? Do you know this joy? It's found only in Jesus. I dare say that we lack this joy as, as believers because we have taken our eyes off those eternal things. Rather than, than knowing what joy is in the heart of Christ and in His promises and in eternal realities of His good sovereignty, we've allowed ourselves to put our eyes on temporal circumstances. We've allowed ourselves to, to settle for a moment-by-moment -moment happiness or lack thereof, rather than knowing a consistent joy through it all. Is your life hard? Lonely? Are you struggling? Are you fighting through some issue? Are you confronted with the difficulties of a hard marriage or of singleness? Are you confronted with the challenges of just the rat race and having to keep up with everything and worrying about finances? Are you suffering a loss? Because someone has died, or even worse, because someone has intentionally left you and forsaken you to seek another life other than the one they would have with you. Do you struggle, Christian? Know that even in the midst of your struggle, you can still know joy in Jesus Christ.
a joy that cannot be lost, that no power on earth can assault or, or, or take away, a joy that is grounded in the love of the Son of God Himself for you, a love that is infinite, a love that is eternal, a love that is perfect, a love that has been expressed and experienced within the Godhead for all eternity that is now being lavished upon you in the person of Jesus Christ. A love that will never allow you to be separated from Him, no matter what. This is joy, brothers and sisters. This is His joy. Joy is the real treasure and fruit of God's love. And when we truly grasp the nature of His love and our joy, we will see that the things of this world can never even begin to satisfy us or give us contentment or make us happy. This is why Paul in Philippians 4.4 commands us. It is a command in Scripture. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice, brothers and sisters, in Christ. As we abide in Him, may we rejoice in Him. And as we abide in Him, may we thrive. May we thrive spiritually. May we thrive as a people who live this life with an eye always to His glory. May we thrive as a people who hold lightly the things of this world and give freely and generously as Christ does. May we thrive as a people who even when we are faced with suffering, we know that greater is He that is in us than he that is in the world. May we thrive as a people who go forth seeking to share Christ wherever we go with whomever we meet because we know there is no greater joy in this life than that which is given to us through Jesus Christ our Lord and that therefore there is nothing better we could want for our fellow man than to bring them into this joy, to know the joy of Christ, the forgiveness of sins, the promise of heaven, and all the treasure that he is for us for all eternity. That is joy, brothers and sisters. God has a bigger purpose for you, for your family, for our church, a bigger purpose than so many of us realized. And it's because we've set our gaze here and we've allowed ourselves to be distracted here. And we have faltered in our abiding in Christ the sweet invitation of our Savior this very moment is, I have never left you. I will never forsake you. Not even your sin could turn me from you. Come back to the torrent of my love and know the very joy of the one who has redeemed you. I pray this very day, brothers and sisters, we will be struck by these wonders of His love and know the joy of giving everything for His glory.